Last sermon, I spoke about Avinu Malkenu. Raise your hand if you were here for that, if you remember that. You can also listen to them online if you miss one, uh, or if you get podcasts. Who, who, lis- who likes to listen to podcasts? All right, very good. So uh, Avinu Malkenu, I spoke about how God is our Father and our King, and the ways that we can respond to that reality. This morning, I'd like to talk about the implications of the second part, Malkenu, our king, and draw out a theme which I find to be paramount in the narrative of the scriptures. If God is our king, that means we must be part of what? A kingdom, yes. The kingdom of heaven, also called the kingdom of God, can be very helpful as a thread to find our place in the narrative of scripture. So the title of this sermon is The Kingdom of God, and I have three movements. Yeah, yeah, you didn't see that coming. Three movements. I I have three points. All right, so number one, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Bavel. Raise your hand if you know what Bavel is. We're going to talk about that. Number two, the kingdom reversed, renewed, and revealed And number three, moving forward in the kingdom of heaven. So let's begin with movement number one, or point number one. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Babel. Now, the Garden of Eden, we remember this? In the creation account, it can be viewed as a kingdom. Here, the humans, that would be Adam and Chava, they are made co-rulers, in a sense, with God, or stewards, perhaps, over the earth to subdue and have dominion over it. Genesis 1.28 puts it this way. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Let's read this together. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and every living creature that crawls on the earth. So as we have seen, be fruitful and multiply, it means more than just make some more humans, right? Rather, it means to bring the kingdom of God throughout the earth. The humans, Adam and Eve, they are the stewards of the creation, ruling over the creation as the king, God, rules over them. However, the humans, they don't do such a great job, do they? Right? They don't fulfill this rule perfectly because of what I will call the first mistake. Do we remember the first mistake in history? Not if you remember. Do you know what I'm talking about? Often referred to as the fall. This is the eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. On the other hand, God's purpose for his kingdom continues to pervade the narrative of Scripture. He has the same purpose. But... On the other hand, the eating of the fruit can be viewed as the first attempt of humans setting up their own kingdom, this other kingdom, in opposition to the kingdom of God. So rather than being content to be co-leaders under the leader with a capital L, the humans, Adam and Eve, they want to redefine good and evil and rule things their own way, saying that you know, really, they should be the leaders with a capital L instead of 
Hashem. And what happens when they try to usurp the throne of rulership? Well, you just have to read Genesis 3 through 11 to find the answer. Suffering, broken relationships, disease, hardship, pain, jealousy, rage, murder, self-destruction, fear, shame, regret, and death enter the space meant for the kingdom of God. Such is the fate of that other kingdom. If the garden before the first mistake was heaven on earth, then that means the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God at one time before the mistake, what did it do? It overlapped totally and completely with the kingdom on earth or the kingdom of the humans. But now the mistake has been made and there is a what? There's a split between the two. And the rest of scripture perhaps is about how God is going to bring them back together with the kingdom of heaven breaking through into the kingdom of the earth. But as I said, in Genesis 3 through 11, the suffering and murder and evil play out in the children of Adam and Hava. As this other kingdom seems to take hold of the space for a brief season. So let's progress to what I think is a linchpin story about the kingdom, to the narrative of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11.4. So let's read it together. This is what all the humans say. Then they said, let's say this together, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that has its top reaching up into heaven so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth. Let's leave that up there for a second, Robert, okay? Come, let's build ourselves. In Hebrew, it says, nivne lanu. This could be translated as, let's build for ourselves, or build to ourselves, or build toward ourselves. The text could simply read, it could just say, let's build, nivne. But it doesn't say that. It adds a pronoun, lanu, for us. And this describes an emphasis or a direction. The idea is they want to build a city-state, which is, as far as I can tell, the first organized community in Scripture, with a tower that goes all the way up to the throne, toward the throne of God, to make a name for ourselves. Again, it's that, that pronoun, lanu. It says, na'ase lanu shem. Let's build up our name, our reputation. Shem means both in Hebrew. Let's reject the primary role of the humans that we had with Adam and Eve. Our, prim our primary directive from those days was to do what? We were to lead under the authority of Hashem, the name, and make his name great. Make known his ways and his authority, and his fatherly love throughout the earth. But here, they're saying, let's make our name great. That means that we will strive to puff ourselves up and usurp the very throne of God himself. Has Hashem, the name above all names, called you 
to be a teacher, then be a good teacher. But always strive to make known the teacher above all teachers. Has Hashem called you to lead? Then be a leader who makes the leader with a capital L known. Has Hashem called you to bring healing on the kingdom of the earth? Then heal others in the power and under the authority of the healer with a capital H. Yes, I want to be a good rabbi. But even more, I want to make known the best and greatest rabbi with a capital R the world has ever seen. So after God stops them from building the tower, he confuses their language. The text reads in Genesis 11 verse 9. For this reason, it is called Bavel, confusion, because there Adonai confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Adonai scattered them all over the earth. Here the word Bavel is translated in most English Bibles as Babel, from which we get the name the Tower of Babel, and the English words babbling on, which I pray I'm not doing in the sermon. Okay. But... The Hebrew word Bavel is traditionally translated as Babel only here, only in this context. It appears 257 more times in the scripture as another word. Any idea as how it's usually translated? Babylon. Babylon. In the scripture, Babylon is a symbol, a liet motif, a theme which resurfaces in many iterations as the human kingdom which rejects the authority of Hashem. The original Babel, the Tower of Babel, gives us the uber example, the prime example, which reaches back to the first mistake that we talked about with Adam and Eve. And it brings the first definition to this other worldly, self-serving kingdom. But when we think of Babylon, Babel, let's not just think of the literal kingdom of Babylon. Because scripture describes many kingdoms as Babel. Really, any kingdom which seeks to redefine good and evil on its own terms, remember the fruit. Any kingdom which makes itself great instead of making Hashem great. And any kingdom which tries to take over the throne of God and become its own God. That's Babylon. That's Bavel. Do we see that? You with me so far? Nod? Yes? Okay, good. So in the following pages of Genesis, the kingdom of God, perhaps the anti-Babylon, finds expression through the peoplehood of Israel. And it breaks through for a season onto the earth. God's original authority and the kingdom of heaven were made manifest to all nations through the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the chief stewards of this kingdom, co-rulers under the authority of God the King. We actually see a picture of this blessing and stewardship uh, in the, uh, of authority in the person of Joseph, I think. Joseph, remember, was rejected. He was lowered to a dungeon for three years and then raised up to be the prime minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, kind of like Adam's relationship with God. And this Joseph brought salvation and healing, forgiveness, reconciliation, the foundations of the kingdom of heaven. 
But the kingdom of Babel was not far away. The next Babylon or Babel we see in the scripture is the kingdom of Egypt, which we encounter in the book of Shemot or Exodus chapter 1 verses 7 through 17. This is what it says. The descendants of Israel were fruitful, increased abundantly, and multiplied. Does that sound familiar? Yes. Okay, good. And grew very powerful. The land became filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, and he knew nothing about Yosef, but said to his people, look, the descendants of Israel have become a people too numerous, numerous and powerful for us. Come, let's use wisdom in dealing with them. Otherwise, they'll continue to multiply, and in the event of war, they might ally themselves with our enemies, fight against us, and leave the land altogether. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built for Pharaoh the storage cities of Pitom and Ramses. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they multiplied and expanded until the Egyptians came to dread the people of Israel and worked them relentlessly, making their lives bitter with hard labor, digging clay, making bricks, all kinds of field work, and in all this toil they were shown no mercy. Moreover, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was called Shifra and the other Pu'ah. When you attend the Hebrew women and see them giving birth, he said, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. However, the midwives were God-fearing women, so they didn't do as the king of Egypt ordered, but let the boys live. Let's leave that up for a moment as well, okay? This is a text. It's reminding us of the original kingdom of heaven and the original mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Bring the kingdom of heaven onto the kingdom of earth. It was made more explicit to the children of Jacob or Israel. But this new pharaoh... Not like the Pharaoh of Joseph's time. And he becomes the architect of a new Babylon, a new Babel. It's like the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Babel. I wonder which one is going to emerge victorious. We'll have to wait till Passover to find out. This Pharaoh pits himself against the kingdom of God by doing two things. One, he seeks to wipe out the children of Jacob who are trying to bring forth that kingdom. So how does he do it? He enslaves them first, and then he tries to murder innocent babies. The innocent babies of the Israelites, and then he calls it good. This new pharaoh is redefining good and evil on his own terms. Like eating the fruit all over again. And pitting himself against the kingdom of God and against the authority of Hashem. And he's also seeking to make himself great. He's trying to make himself equal to God. Notice, however, at the end, there were midwives who feared. That means they respected the authority of God. And they refused to submit to the kingdom of Babel. The scripture reads right after this that God prospered the midwives along with the children of Jacob. So they would both become numerous and powerful. There is blessing in the kingdom of heaven. Can we say amen to that? In the narrative of the Exodus, God brings his kingdom to earth. Suddenly, dramatically, 
He rescues his children out of the oppressive kingdom of Egypt. He saves the babies from death, and he saves his children from slavery. Hallelujah. Now, the next appearance of the kingdom of Bevel. Well, you know, this one is kind of surprising. So I'm, I'm just going to read some scriptures to you, and we'll see if we can identify who the, the, the next Egypt slash Babylon is. All right, so let's put on our detective hats. Youth, you got your hats on? Yes? Okay, I hope so. All right, you ready to take a look? Here we go. King Solomon, or Shlomo, he designed two major building projects. First, he built a temple for God, as was in his father's heart to do. And then he built a temple for his, his, himself, a palace, to live in. So the last verse of chapter 6, uh, I think this is in 1 Kings, verse 38, this is what it reads. In the 11th year, in the month of Bull, which is the 8th month, all the parts of the house were designed, were completely, exactly, completed exactly as designed. Woo! <clears throat> this is the important part here. I'm not going to bungle it up, hopefully. Thus he was seven years in building it. That's, what is that? What was he building? The temple. Okay? So it took Solomon seven years to build the temple. Yeah, that's a nice description. The dwelling place of God. Of course, chapters and verses were added much later to the text. And the very next verse, which is the beginning of chapter 7, says something else that's kind of interesting. All right, let's take a look. Shlomo built a palace for himself, taking 13 years to finish it. Interesting. Interesting, right? Took seven years for the temple of God. And then we're immediately told the next verse says, took him 13 years to build his palace. Oh, very nice. That's nearly twice as long. Let the reader take note. This is the description of a man who had near infinite wealth and power and wisdom. Who started off, if we remember, he had a priority to rule with discernment under the authority of Hashem, to make God great and give God the glory. And now, if we have our detective hats on, we see that the text is implying something. Solomon, he's slipping. Solomon, be slipping. Can I say that? Yeah? Solomon, be tripping, right? Can I get an amen? Man, you guys are, you need to wake up out there. A few chapters later, we zero in on another interesting fact. This is in 1 Kings 9, 15. Following is the account of the forced labor levied by King Shlomo for building the house of Adonai, his own palace, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, the cities of Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Sounds great, doesn't it? He's building all this stuff, and then wait, wait a minute. Did you catch that? That little turn of phrase? What does it say? I highlighted it for you. Forced labor. Interesting. Interesting. What's the phrase in Hebrew? It's hamas or hamis. You know, fellow detectives, that's the same Hebrew word in Exodus 1 verse 11 that we read not five minutes ago. Describing the evil, the evil pharaoh of Egypt and the architect of the kingdom of Babel. Again, let the reader take note. 
the same language describing the evilest figure in the Torah, now attributed to one of the greatest kings. So raise your hand if you think Solomon be slipping. He's going from one kingdom, yeah, to this kind of other kingdom. He's slowly going along. Maybe it had to do with all those foreign wives. More than one wife, not a good plan. All right, amen. My wife says amen. All right, I'm getting off track here. So Solomon's kingdom, it eventually degrades and degenerates further and further, especially after his death, leading to a new Egypt Babylon, which you haven't guessed by now. I will tell you who it is. Who do you think it is? It's Israel. The oppressed ones that were rescued out of Exodus, they're the new Egypt. They're the new Babel. You see, king after king, with a couple, you know, good kings thrown in there, eventually descended into full-on kingdoms of Babylon. The nation was divided into two kingdoms. There was northern Israel and southern Judah, neither of which was winning the kingdom of heaven award. Amos, the shepherd turned prophet, he spoke judgment on these new kingdoms of Israel and Judah, which we now know are like Babel. After condemning, so he turned, he talked about the other nations, uh, the Amorites and all of them and surrounding nations. And then he started talking to Judah and Israel. And this is what it says in Amos 2, verses 4 through 16. There's an indictment, a list of charges. Here's what Adonai says. For Judah's three crimes, no four. I will not reverse it because they rejected Adonai's Torah and have not observed his laws. And their lies caused them to fall into error and live the way their ancestors did. I will send fire on Judah. It will consume the palaces of Jerusalem. Here is what Adonai says. For Israel's three crimes, no four, this is the other kingdom, I will not reverse it because they sell the upright for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes, grinding the heads of the poor in the dust, pushing the lowly out of the way. Father and son sleep with the same girl, profaning my holy name, lying down beside any altar on clothes taken in pledge, drinking wine in the house of their God, bought with fines they imposed. I destroyed the Amori, that is the Amorites, before them, though tall as cedars and strong as oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their root below. More than that, he's reminding them, I brought you out of Egypt, and I led you 40 years in the desert so that you could have this land. I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, other young men of yours to be Nitzrim or Nazarites, people of Israel. Isn't that true? Asked Adonai. But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and ordered the prophets, don't prophesy enough. I will make... All this crush you, just as a cart overloaded with grain crushes what's under it. Even the swift won't be able to flee. The strong won't be able to use their strength. The warriors won't save themselves. Archers won't be able to stand. The fastest runners won't save themselves. Those on horses won't save themselves. On that day, even the bravest warriors will throw off their weapons and flee, says Adonai. Yes. Yes. Even the chosen holy nation of Israel, the one God delivered from the Egypt slash Babylon of that time, even they can become themselves Babylon. From Amos, what do we see here? 
a rejection of Torah, that is a rejection of God's ways and his justice and kingship and love. We find violent oppression of the innocent, just like what happened to the Israelite babies in the time of Pharaoh. We find a reversal of a moral compass. God has rejected his king, a redefining of good and evil in increasingly horrible ways. And for this proud, repeated rejection of God, the king, and his kingdom, the once mighty beacon nation of Israel is sent into exile. And this is the next appearance of the kingdom of Babel. It's the actual Babel, that is, it's Babylon. Here we are. This is where the Israelites are sent. The book of Daniel describes it. We find Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel. And what does this king do? He sets up this golden statue of himself for everyone to bow down and worship it. And then Daniel's three friends, uh, what are their names? Jack, Rack, and Benny, something like that. Okay, that might be VeggieTales. All right, but uh, his three friends, what do they do? They don't bow down to this idol. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, no problem, I'll just murder them, and sends them into the fire. But God delivers them out of the fire, just as he delivered the children of Jacob from Egypt. And he rescues the innocent babies. He, he redeems his children from slavery. He brings them out of the fire. Amen? But apparently... This lesson of God's kingship didn't quite stick with King Nebuchadnezzar. He was like, oh, yeah, I guess God does save. That's really cool. So what, is, what does he say next? He starts talking about how great he is. And he says, Babel the Great, Babylon the Great. I built it as a royal residence by my power and force to enhance the glory of my majesty. You know what happens right after this? He thinks he's a cow. He starts eating grass for seven years. The point is, the Tower of Babel, the kingdom of Egypt, the degenerated kingdom of Israel, and Babylon herself, they're all the same. Over and over, these kingdoms try to reject the kingdom of God, and they suffer the consequences. It seems that most earthly kingdoms, even the splendor of Solomon's kingdom, eventually become Babel. The kingdom of God, however, is exemplified in the charge to Adam and Eve, the life story of Joseph, the redemption of Israel from Egypt, the kingdoms of David and Solomon, you know, at least the first part. And this is what it is. It's justice, salvation, reconciliation, forgiveness, and shalom. And this brings us to the second movement, the second point. The kingdom reversed, renewed, and revealed. <sighs> you know what? On second thought, you all look like you're ready for Oneg. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. How about this? If you tune in next time I speak, we'll pick up on the second point or the second movement in my next sermon. Does that sound good? All right. But for now, let's close with the Messiah's prayer. This is the Lord's prayer, how he taught us to pray. And let's see if we can apply some of the things we've seen in these two kingdoms. And let's recite it together, keeping in mind God's purpose to bring the kingdom of heaven back onto the earth.
Let's say it together. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the food we need today. Forgive us what we have done wrong, as we too have forgiven those who have wronged us. And do not lead us into hard testing, but keep us safe from the evil one. For kingship, power, and glory are yours forever. Amen.